I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On today's episode of The Trade Guys, Bill and I are joined by CSIS expert Matt Goodman to talk about the upcoming G7 summit and why it matters. We'll discuss the issues on the table, including the COVID pandemic and vaccine distribution, climate change, and other matters. Plus, we go over the latest developments on a global minimum corporate tax. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Welcome back to another episode of The Trade Guys. This is Scott Miller. I'll mostly be moderating today because we have uh, one of our friends and colleagues as a guest on today's program, Matt Goodman, Senior Vice President for Economics, holds the Simon Chair in Political Economy at CSIS. We're pleased to have Matt join us because he's uh, an expert on summetry, among many other things. Matt started his career in government at the Department of the Treasury and worked for a time at our U.S. Embassy in Japan as an economic attache, and then uh, returned to government uh, to uh, work in the Obama White House, uh, where he was uh, responsible in as part of the, the uh, national security staff for various summits like the G7. If I recall the terminology, the principal is, is obviously the adventurer. The key assistant is the Sherpa. And Matt was the assistant to the key assistant, in this case, Mike Froman, which makes Matt a yak in parlance. So, uh, so we welcome your yak hood and uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, let's start off by if you can give our listeners an idea of what all these summits are about and why, we, why our president attends. Well, thanks, Scott. And um, yes, I was a yak, but I got a haircut, so I'm, uh, I'm looking a lot trimmer these days. So, I mean, obviously, summetry has gone on for, for centuries um, on one level or another. But in this area of economic and trade policy, it really started in a big way in the 1970s. That was about 30 years after the U.S. came out of World War II victorious in all senses and created this uh, international system of economic rules and economic institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and ultimately the WTO, the World Trade Organization. But by the 70s, there were a lot of strains in that system. In particular, the, the centrality of the dollar was causing some real strains in the U.S. economy. And uh, that then, on top of that, you had the oil shocks of the 1970s. And it was clear that the system with these big institutions with all countries substantially in them was not going to be able to really address some of those shocks you know, to the global economy. And so a group of advanced industrialized countries, actually led by France, interestingly, the president in 1975 of France was a guy named Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. And he had been finance minister when the, when the dollar system kind of broke down and started something called the Library Group. There's a whole other interesting history about that with four other countries, the United States, UK, Germany, and ultimately Japan. So those five countries, he summoned to a castle outside Paris called Rambouillet in 1975 to talk about all these economic disruptions and to try to come up with a kind of coordinated, cooperative approach to responding as the biggest economy. So from then on, the so-called G5, but it was actually, sorry, just a little footnote, 
It quickly became the G7 because Italy, which was then the sixth largest economy in the world, found out that this meeting was going on and invited itself um, to the first meeting in 1975. And then Canada, which was number seven, wanted to be part of the show. So the following year, Canada was added, so it became a G7. And, you know, this group was the kind of steering group for the global economy. But over time, you know, it changed. Other countries got bigger and other groups were formed like the G20 and in 2008 during the global financial crisis. And the G7 kind of diminished in importance, but it's back again. And that's, you know, we're on the eve of the next uh, round of, of G7 meetings. And we're going to talk about that, I think, in a little more detail. But these are basically, to sum up, a kind of a practical, kind of informal grouping of countries um, at leaders level and that's why they're called summits, where they get together and talk about, you know, how we can work together to fix, you know, global economic and now a broader set of political and, and other issues um, as well. And uh, it was a practical response to a, a system that was a little too rigid and not delivering results. Now, it was the G8 for a few years, right? Can you say a word about that? It did uh, become the G8 in the late 1990s. Uh, Russia was added to the group. Um, this was largely because the Soviet Union had had dissolved in the early part of that decade. And I think the U.S. and other G7 countries wanted to encourage uh, political and economic reform in Russia. And I think thought that at least at the time, Boris Yeltsin and then ultimately his successor, Vladimir Putin, were going to take the country in a more liberal direction. Oops. Um, so they added Russia to the group and it became the G8. Interestingly, as a treasury, former treasury guy, it was never a G8 as a finance ministry grouping. Um, it was always the seven, but the eight at the sort of political leaders level until 2014 when uh, Russia invaded Crimea and uh, the group tossed Russia out again. So for about 15 years, it was a G8. Well, for us trade guys, uh, it was almost never a G8 because uh, for most of the period that of uh, the Yeltsin era of Russia, Russia was not actually a member of the WTO, which was the main multilateral group we cared about. Right, right. So, Bill, you've been, you've been around Washington when these summits happened for a long time. What are your expectations on this one? Well, there's almost always uh, a joint statement at the end. I think Trump turned out to be an exception to that one or more of his years. But there's usually a joint statement in which the parties pledge to do a bunch of things. These things tend to be uh, a little bit vague. I mean, Matt can comment on that, but uh, they also have the benefit, I think, of focusing global attention on, on what the countries think matters. And it's not just about trade. I mean, that's what usually we talk about, but a, a lot of it is about uh, foreign policy. And I think Biden is making clear that a lot of it is going, from his point of view, needs to be about uh, democracy and the growing divide, if you will, between democratic states and authoritarian states and how the democracies need to need to step up, which I think to him means not only stepping up rhetorically, but uh, demonstrating that their model, including a, a market-based economic model, is a better one than the authoritarian model. The, the Chinese, of course, who are not in the G7, uh, are busy saying that their model works better and people are paying attention. But a lot of what Biden is doing is trying to suggest that the G7 needs to get its collective act together if it's going to defend democracy uh, more actively. One particular thing that I think we'll be talking about a little bit later that is likely to come out of this as a result of last weekend, 
was um, the agreement amongst the seven on a, a global taxation, a corporate taxation uh, structure, which has been a subject of negotiations for years. And finally, has had a breakthrough this spring, thanks primarily to the Biden administration, uh, who withdrew a Trump proposal that was effectively a deal breaker and made some proposals of its own that have allow things to go forward. I assume, and Matt can correct me, that the uh, the G7 leaders are going to ratify that and uh, try to give it another kick down the road. Yep, absolutely. No, the, um, the way these things work is ahead of the summit, meaning the meeting of leaders, which is going to be June 11th through 13th in Cornwall in the UK. Before that, there are a whole bunch of uh, lower level meetings, including uh, cabinet level meetings of finance ministers, health ministers, climate ministers, digital ministers, and of course, importantly, trade ministers. And they have agreed, all of them, to a bunch of pieces of paper that include uh, more or less concrete commitments to work together on various issues. Um, And then what typically happens at the summit is there are private conversations among the leaders and then a public document called a communique, which is issued at the end, which is a bunch of words and long paragraphs, but it tends to, at its best, endorse those uh, agreements and commitments at the at the lower levels and to really put a, a a fine point on as you said bill a lot of this is about kind of agenda setting and showing the world what this group of countries which is still by the way despite the rise of china and india and others uh, it is still uniquely the seven largest advanced market democracies if you say all those words together this is that group. It, it's the only group there. The others don't make the cut. And, you know, for this group of countries to say this is what we think is important is really a lot about what this is about. And, and then there's an element of just sort of problem solving, as, as there was at the beginning when you had these shocks um, from the oil shocks in the 70s. Now they're kind of three shocks because you have a combination of um, the health pandemic and the shock that's created to the system. Secondly, a longer term shock of climate change, which all the governments of the leaders are are animated by right now, uh, rightly so. And thirdly, the China-Russia shocks uh, to the global system. And so those are going to be the framing, I think, of the outcomes from the G7 leaders and in this long communique are going to be focused on sort of specific uh, cooperative efforts, you know, more or less specific, more or less um, collaborative efforts as opposed to sort of parallel work that they're doing anyway. You know, and and frankly, then there's a fourth issue, which is trade, which is the subject of this amazing podcast series, uh, but is not going to be, I think, the centerpiece of this particular G7 meeting for reasons I'm happy to talk about if you're interested. Well, before we get to uh, the tax agreement or, or whatever it is on corporate taxation, let's talk about uh, sort of COVID and climate. Do you expect any deliverables out of this or should is, is this the wrong group from which to expect deliverables? I think there will be some significant agreements announced, again, based on these earlier minister level, level meetings that have been held. I mean, I do think there's going to be a pretty strong statement of, of joint resolve and actual financial contribution and effort to get vaccine production and distribution pushed out around the world. I mean, there's been a lot of skepticism about this and what countries have have been able to do so far, including the United States. But I think you're going to see some pretty big numbers of of vaccines that are going to be distributed by the end of the year, by the end of next year, um, with, you know, 
double digit billions of dollars directed at this uh, effort collectively, I mean, including the World Bank and other other players in the story. So I do think you'll see some, you know, fairly significant things, uh, as well as some pandemic preparedness measures um, for the next time this happens, which it will. On climate, again, looking at what the climate ministers agreed to, I think, you know, an affirmation that that the one that that we're going to be aiming to let temperatures rise, global warming rise only 1.5 degrees of Celsius as opposed to two. That's the sort of basic commitment, um, affirming that and then sort of trying to get ambition by individual countries to reduce uh, greenhouse gases uh, stepped up ahead of the UN conference in uh, November, again in the UK, the so-called COP26 meeting. Um, And so pushing that and then some specific things in this area that I'm kind of interested in, like I think a commitment from the G7 to stop funding coal-fired power plants around the world. Um, and trying to get other countries to reduce certainly coal and maybe other fossil fuel fired power plants, which would actually be a sort of tangible thing. Plus investments then in clean energy and so forth. That'll be, I'm sure, a part of the conversation as well. So, so I think there'll be some important things laid out there. You know, the question as always will be, you know, will countries put money behind this? Will they put effort behind it? Um, will they actually deliver tangible uh, new policies to to make this stuff happen. That's always the question in these things. Well, sure. And also, I think it's possible that the media will add uh, cicadas to the agenda. I did note that the press plane uh, chartered aircraft from the United States uh, to the UK uh, was delayed 17 hours because one of the engines took in a a fleet of, uh, of cicadas. So... Can I just add, you talked earlier and Bill did about sort of the democracies getting together. And I do think uh, that this is a really important part of the agenda, too. Uh, the Brits have called this uh, championing shared values. And I think it includes they've they've listed in their sort of general public website uh, what that means is a joint work on global development in particular and dealing with things like girls, education, uh, health issues in, in the developing world. And then importantly, sustainable development finance. Those are big words with a lot of syllables. But basically what it means is, I think, trying to get more money and government support for uh, building infrastructure, you know, roads, bridges, but also digital infrastructure around the world. And this is pointedly in contrast to China's Belt and Road Initiative that you probably talked about on this program, you know, which is this big infrastructure build out. And, and President Biden, among others, has said, we've got to have an alternative. And I think I'm looking at that particular set of commitments because I think that's going to be one of the tangible things that will be trying to move beyond just the rhetoric about democracies getting together, but actually to tangible things that this group of countries can do to promote, you know, quality infrastructure in this case. You know, that that kind of raises a, an interesting question that we've discussed from time to time, and Matt, maybe you can reflect on it as well, which is, you know, most of the rest of the G7 are European. I mean, there's Canada and, and uh, Japan, but most of them are European. Are we going to be able to come to an agreement with them on how to deal with China? No, that's a really good question. One of the 64,000 euro questions that everybody's asking, because we have had a very different kind of sensibility about China, which is getting closer together now. But Europe was about, you know, four or five years ago, pretty much seeing China as a huge market opportunity, you know, as a source of investment and therefore growth and jobs in Europe. 
And the scale started to drop from European eyes a little bit um, a few years ago when you saw China coming in with its Belt and Road Initiative to Eastern and Southern Europe and sort of doing things in ways like with government procurement, which, again, I know you talk about on this program, rules that are not consistent with EU rules. That really got attention in Brussels, um, you know, the heart of the EU. And then, um, you know, some, some Chinese investments in sensitive companies and so forth uh, created a push to have more, um, you know, screening of, of inbound uh, foreign investments. So a lot of countries have, and, and Brussels itself have tightened their approaches um, to those issues. So, so there's movement in, in the direction, you know, I assume you've talked, you know, again to your, your, your listeners about the China story here in Washington where there's a very kind of bipartisan view that, that China is a real challenge and a real problem to us, to our economy, to our national security. And Europe is sort of catching up with that, but we're not quite there yet. And I think there is going to be some difference of approach and willingness to say things or do things to directly confront China. Uh, but there's some shared concern. And it's interesting, just one footnote, Boris Johnson, the host of the G7 this year, originally was talking about hosting a D10, a democracy 10, and formally including India, South Korea, and Australia in that group. In the end, he was sort of backed off that idea, but he has invited those three countries plus South Africa to come to the G7 summit to, for, to participate in some of the meetings. And I think the fact that you've got three Indo-Pacific countries, India, South Korea, Australia, in the room will also enhance the discussion of China, sort of to your point, Bill, that this isn't just going to be a transatlantic conversation and there will be some pressure, I think, on Europe to, to look at those issues. We've talked a lot about subsidies over the years on this program and uh, the United States, Japan and Europe under the auspices of the WTO work to try to arrange a subsidies agreement. So that, that alignment is basically the G7 minus Canada. And uh, it went nowhere, mostly because Europe couldn't figure out how to, how to keep all their subsidies and, uh, and still discipline China. So it's, uh, it's, it's, got a, it's got a ways to go to becoming a reality. Good point. And it'll be really interesting to see what the G7 says about subsidies and sort of market distortions more broadly, because that's clearly going to be on the agenda. But what they'll actually say or do as a group is, is something definitely worth watching. You know, you, you raised an interesting point when you talked about the guests that are coming and the fact that they're from Asia. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me uh, listening to you, Matt, is that, that one of the problems with these institutions is they don't uh, change as rapidly as reality changes. You know, so we've got a membership here that was defined by who was really important in 1975. And now it's 2021 and there's other people that are important. I think that was one reason why we ended up with the, with the G20 and, and during the financial crisis. A feeling that the, the seven were not really enough to uh, to to make a difference. What does that mean institutionally? Does that mean that they should be constantly reevaluating membership or what? I think you make a good point, and clearly the group that set up in in the mid seventies is not the group to be the steering group for the global economy, and that's as you say why we moved to a G twenty in the global financial crisis in two thousand eight. But I do believe that these. They're horses for courses. I mean, I think that that you want a sometimes fancily called a variable geometry, meaning a, a different number of countries, depending on what you're talking about, what your objective is. And I do still think there's a power in having, again, as I mentioned, the seven largest advanced market 
democracies getting together, they can uniquely say things about the world system that it's difficult for others to really say with the same credibility. But yeah, I mean, I think the addition of some of these other countries to the conversation like Australia and South Korea, India is important to uh, to get broader perspectives here. I mean, you asked about Russia. You know, the reason we invited Russia to the G7 was for the was the wrong reason. I mean, in other words, we invited them because we wanted to make Boris Yeltsin or Vladimir Putin happy. And we shouldn't have done it. We should have thought, do we need Russia in the room in order to have a conversation about the global economy? If the answer to that is yes, sure, then they should be there. But I, I think you should put function before form in these things and not just create new groups or expand groups because you want to have your buddies in, in the room. Well, let's uh, shift gears uh, to tax policy. Uh, it's a frequent topic on the trade guys, mostly in the form recently of the digital services tax, which uh, wound up uh, using a trade instrument to try to address it, uh, Section 301. But Bill, let me call on you, your experience as president of the National Foreign Trade Council and this longstanding issue of corporate taxation. And uh, what did we agree to, if anything, in the last week or so? Well, they've been negotiating two pillars, if you will. And this was this is a G20 project, although it had, the OECD is pursuing the detailed work at the direction of the G20. And it involves a lot more than the 20. It involves a lot more than the OECD, which is, I don't know, 38 right now, I think. There are 139 countries that are participating in the OECD's work. And the two pillars are, one, uh, can we uh, establish a minimum uh, rate of global corporate taxation, in which all countries would agree to whatever the rate is. Uh, and the G7 agreed on, on 15%. And so countries that go would not be able to go below it. That's designed to kind of deal with the, you know, the race to the bottom issue countries that, that deliberately lower their taxes in order to attract uh, large companies to move there. Uh, and hopefully engage in some economic activity there, although sometimes basically it's a mail drop and not always a lot of economic activity. It depends. So that was one pillar. The other pillar has been a response to demands by a number of countries, particularly in Europe, that companies are making substantial amounts of money in their country, uh, even if they don't necessarily have a significant physical presence in the country. Uh, and this is ended up being sort of code for the large uh, internet platforms and, and uh, digital trade companies. So Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, some others, uh, Microsoft sometimes uh, makes the cut, sometimes doesn't. Companies that make large amounts of money, apparently, in countries where they're, uh, but they pay taxes where they're headquartered, which most of the time is here. Um, and that's what's made the issue controversial because uh, from the United States perception, this is basically an effort to, uh, you know, to tax American companies elsewhere. At the same time, you know, the other countries have a point. Uh, they're making money in their countries. And it's uh, a fair point to say, you know, if we're going to have a tax on, on profits, if they're making profits, they ought to pay a, a share. That's what the argument has been about. It's taken on an edge in recent years because a number of countries, mostly in Europe, but also including India, uh, and Canada simply announced, and in some cases enacted, uh, unilateral tax policies of their own that would go after these companies. And the U.S. has complained that they were um, overtly discriminatory and that they almost, uh, in every case, ended up taxing American companies and not companies from that country. And uh, the Trump administration initiated uh, 
uh, trade investigations, 301 investigations against the various countries that were doing that and um, concluded, I think in most of the cases, if not all of them, that the countries were doing bad things from our standpoint, proposed uh, retaliatory tariffs and then suspended them. And Ambassador Tai has also suspended them in anticipation of the OECD coming to a conclusion. And the idea is if we can get all 139 countries to agree on doing something, including us, then you don't need these other national taxes. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but that's the idea. What the G7 said is we are going to have a 15% corporate rate, which uh, across the board, which is the second, the second pillar. And on the first pillar, we're going to tackle companies that uh, have more than a 10% profit margin in a country, and they're going to be taxed at, I think it's, uh, they're going to be taxed further on 20% of their profit above the 10%. That was last weekend's agreement. That has then led to a mad rush to figure out who those companies are. And, you know, because that's what tax policy always ends up being. You know, am I getting the haircut or is somebody else getting the haircut? And uh, right now they're trying to figure that out. And the anomaly that emerged fastest was Amazon, uh, which it turns out uh, for the entire company um, is a low margin business. Uh, and their their profit margin is generally agreed to be well south of 10%. A number of countries said, we can't do this without taxing Amazon. Uh, and so they are at the moment trying to figure out a way to do that, that uh, still leaves a, a threshold because the original idea was, let's get the very large companies that are multinational and let's allow uh, countries where they do business to get a share of their of their tax revenue. So many details to be worked out. The next step is um, the uh, G20 uh, finance ministers meet in July, uh, and they hopefully will pass uh, favorably on this. Uh, the OECD will continue meeting to fine tune all of this, and hopefully it will come before the, uh, the G20 ministers. And if it's approved, even then, you're talking years because this is tax. Countries have to then embody whatever was agreed to in their national legislation. And of course, here that means uh, President Biden has to talk the Congress into it. And there's already been some uh, uh, people saying this is a bad idea. So uh, many uphill steps to go. Matt, how do other countries look at this? Uh, what do you think will happen at the, at the G7 and G20? Well, I think Bill's laid it out very well. And I do think that this is going to be a major deliverable, as we call them, sort of an outcome from uh, the G7 summit, because the finance ministers have reached this sort of tentative agreement, and the leaders will probably bless that. But as Bill said, there's a, a lot of things that still have to happen. I, I think it's, it's so easy to say 15% tax or even 20% and 10%, you know, those are nice round numbers and it's sort of easy to sort of get your head around that. But uh, this stuff is way more complicated than that. There's gonna be a, just a huge amount of uh, devil in the detail of the tax proposals themselves, let alone the politics behind this as Bill suggested. I think it's gonna be quite difficult to get agreement here in the US to support this. I think this directionally is the right thing to be doing. I mean, it makes sense to avoid this race to the bottom, To let countries collect taxes where business is done in their jurisdiction. But um, but I just think I'm not wildly optimistic that this is going to produce um, agreement. And I think, therefore, you're going to continue to have, especially transatlantic, tension over this uh, impulse 
actually, it's not just transatlantic because Canada wants to impose digital taxes as well. You know, there are just a lot of countries that want to get a piece of our um, tech giants. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to be um, a sore point and a, a, a subject of debate for, for years to come. Sure. Well, here, taxation is is enumerated power of the Congress, and they've been very reluctant to delegate that, that uh, enumerated power to anyone else. So this will be a very interesting debate here. As I heard about this uh, coming out from last week's news, I imagined a gathering of the 50 U.S. states uh, for a conversation about harmonizing state sales taxes and uh, Nevada and Texas and te and Florida and some of the zero tax states laughing the others out of the room. Uh, and so you're right, this will take a while. Bill, does this, what, this winds up a tax treaty at some point, uh, wouldn't it? Unclear, but most people uh, believe that it would, yes, that it would have to be a treaty, which then would require two thirds in the Senate. But then even if a treaty were ratified, you'd still have to pass domestic legislation to change our tax laws to conform to it, because in the United States, treaties are not usually self-executing. Uh, so then at that, that point, the House gets into the act. Uh, and it's very complicated. I mean, people have pointed out already the, the, the contradiction between uh, the administration agreeing to 15 percent at the G7 and pushing 21 percent or 28 percent, depending on what week it is, um, here in the United States. And I think uh, some of the Republicans have pointed out with, with some justification that if the goal is to prevent companies from shifting locations to take advantage of lower ta taxes, if you're still going to have at least a six-point differential between the U.S. and everybody else, uh, you haven't eliminated the incentive to move. I mean, the 15 is a floor, so there, you want, you're not breaking any rules by going higher, but you are basically recreating the uh, the incentive to move that you had initially said this was designed to get rid of. The other problem, of course, is you've got, and Scott alluded to this, although he was too polite to mention names, I won't be, uh, you've got uh, countries in Europe that have benefited significantly from a less than 15% rate. Ireland and Cyprus are the, the, the two talking the loudest, uh, and they uh, cont continue to say they are adamantly opposed to anything that will force them to raise their taxes to uh, 15%. For the EU to take a common position requires unanimity. So that may be make it difficult for the EU to have a common position. On the other hand, in Europe, tax policy is a, is a, a national competency issue. The EU doesn't set a tax rate for the whole, all 27. The countries do. So, you know, the ones that agree to 15 may just go ahead and do 15 and try to pressure the others. We'll see. Many steps to go, though. Well, the good news is, if you're a trade guy, another long-running, potentially unresolvable issue to add to our list of issues that never get solved that we can uh, come back and talk about. So uh, pass the popcorn. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. You, you uh, I think, a big help to, to me in particular, but I think our listeners uh, value the information you, you helped us get on what's going on and why we should care. Well, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. And, um, and good luck with uh, the future conversations. Thanks. See you next week. Bye-bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it.
You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.